Hey and welcome in film fans, this is the SDFE, it is your favorite podcast, the second day film podcast. Thanks for joining us, listening in on this Wednesday, the 28th of March. I'm your host Evan Dean, joined today by the popcorn correspondent Sam Morris. What's going on in your life, man? Not much, Dean, just watching movies. <laughs> we can all say the same. And uh, also joined by Brandon Champion, of course. And Champ, I noticed you, you seem a bit down today. What's going on? Well, Dean, it's a rough day for me and everyone here at the Second Day Film <laughs> Podcast. We've lost an original member of the club. Our beloved refillable popcorn bucket expires in just a few days, April 1st. Uh, unfortunately, it's met its end. It's been a great soldier. It's done wonderful service for us. Just to make sure that we give proper due and proper credit to our beloved popcorn bucket. Our money-saving bucket. Yes, I've, I've prepared a short eulogy, Okay. if you will allow me to read it. All right. Please do. Dearest popcorn bucket, you were a good popcorn bucket. <laughs> for the little cost of $35, you faithfully served the Second Day Film Club with buttery grace and salty stability. Never once did you waver in your service. Even when Dean drenched you in pounds and pounds of fake butter, your sturdy walls and resilient handle held like salt to our arteries. When we walked into the theater for the first time, you were there. When we needed fresh corn from the concession stand, you were there. And when we went to the bathroom, you waited patiently atop the Pepsi machine, knowing we would return. You were there. You were a happy bucket, but now your watch has ended. We will never forget you. Love. The Second Day Film Club. Everyone out there is like, what in the hell is, what am I listening to? Hey, no, you're right though, man. I mean, we we get popcorn every single time we go. And look, it is not cheap. And that bucket, we got so, I wonder I wonder if we added it up, how many actual like regular buckets worth. I'm, I'm sure well over 100 bucks worth. Yeah, in all seriousness, well worth investing Absolutely. in the refillable popcorn bucket. Yeah, my uh, wallet's going to be a little lighter now if I want to keep getting popcorn. Well, hey, guys, uh, we've got a ton uh, after that eulogy that we want to get to. We've got some lighter some lighter fun today. It's not all sad. We're going to miss the popcorn bucket, but we've actually got a pretty packed fifth podcast. We've already reviewed four films. We're getting to that point where you know I'm not going to run down everything we've done, but champ, quickly, I mean, we've got social media accounts, a website where people can see what work we've done already. Yeah, we started out with some sad news, but we have good news, too. We made it on iTunes. The internet gods oh, that's right. have deemed us important enough to be on iTunes. So if you could go uh, to anywhere you're on iTunes, the app, online, go uh, search Second Day Film Podcast and uh, give us a review, mm -hmm. give us a rating. This is super important for us to sort of increase our exposure yeah. in the algorithm and help other like-minded people check it out. We're also on social media of all kinds. We're at the Second Day Film Podcast on Facebook. Second Day Film on Twitter, that's all written out. We're at Second Day Film Podcast on SoundCloud. Our website is www.secondayfilm.com, and you can also email us at secondayfilm at gmail.com. You got it. There it is. All right, you guys ready for today's show? Let's roll. Let's do it. All right, so on today's episode, we have got three segments, as we always do. We've got power rankings. Today we're talking about our top three Disney Pixar films tough to narrow this down because almost all of them are amazing we've also got a new segment for you this is a champs uh, baby if you will this week in film history I'm gonna try that out see what you guys think of that and then today our featured review we're talking about this psychological thriller called unsane so power rankings guys 
I, I guess uh, we can't really dive into our Disney Pixar power rankings without explaining why we decided to do this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, of course, it's March Madness, and uh, there's a lot of spin-off brackets unrelated to basketball that you see on, on the internet, and we saw one that was just... It was not just Pixar, it was other Disney films, but it was... It was a disgrace to Disney films. Well, I think the internet even agreed with us here, too. Um, just what you see the outreach on Twitter of people reposting, saying, I gotta fill this out. The seatings were off. Everything was off. Yeah, if you follow our Facebook page, you saw we share or uh, shared it. Yep. Uh, basically, some kid, unnamed person, we don't know who this terrible, terrible person was, potentially Hitler or Satan or someone like that, <laughs> but they filled out this Disney Pixar bracket, and it was just all wrong, no seating, whatever. Uh, a lot of people have been you know, doing it, doing their own now, sort of filling it out how they would like to, but anyways, this prompted our sort of idea of, hey, maybe we should rank what we think our best Disney uh, films are or Disney Pixar. For our purposes, we're going to focus just on Pixar, so yeah. that uh, that does yeah, not include Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, 101 Dalmatians, Aladdin, Little Mermaid, all those not involved here. This is just Pixar films. It's about a 20-year period, if I recall correctly, um, mid-90s or late-90s. Sam, let's start with you. <clears throat> we're going to go around the table, three, two, one, counting down. Uh, what was your third favorite Disney Pixar film of all time? Um, for me, Dean, uh, my number three here is Monsters, Inc., 2001. Um, I picked it mainly so everyone can get a kick out of me trying to pronounce Mike Wazowski. I know uh, we've had this well thing. I, I did it. I did That's it, right? impressive. Can't say I didn't practice. You should say it. Mike Wazowski! There you go. I, I, some way, somewhere, there was going to be a little chuckle involved, so there we are. Um, I found this movie very entertaining, just like I do all Pixar. I just want to get that, put that out there right away. Um, I truly am a fan. Guilty pleasure is obviously watching these films, whether or not I'm watching it with someone. Um, no matter what, I find a way to make sure I watch them. You know, as a, as a kid, we always wondered, like, what monster was actually in our closet or under our bed. There was yeah. always a thing, you know, like, you always had that underlying kind of, like, memento there of saying, what, what, what's my monster look like under my bed? And in, in this Pixar film, it really kind of brings that to light with the doors swinging, coming down as the way they enter the room. And the whole point of the movie, in, in a sense, was, you know, where does that scream go? What's it used for? And I loved how they correlated that to, like, electricity of Monstropolis as their power source was actually scream. Um, it was, I thought it was a very cool concept, kind of brought everything, like, I, the way that the real world works compared to, like, Pixar's yeah. world. It was cool. And what I really liked is Pixar's such a <clears throat> unique animation company. And they really got to dabble in some fun stuff with all these mo different monsters. Oh, yeah. yeah. And John Goodman and Billy Crystal, of course, voice the leads, and they're both excellent in their respective roles. Uh, oh. My number three film is the first uh, Disney Pixar film, and that's Toy Story from 1995. Uh, this film was directed by John Lasseter, who, of course, has become synonymous with Pixar, not just as a director, but also as like the lead creative mind behind the whole operation. Like I said, it's the film that started it all. Three Academy Award nominations, Best Original Screenplay, Best Original Score, and, of course, Best Original Song for You Got oh, yeah. a Friend in Me. Which is great. And this also received a Special Achievement Academy Award. And that's because it was the first ever feature-length film uh, that was uh, computer animated. So yeah. this is a history-making, revolutionary film. And of course, these movies are commonplace today uh, through a lot of studios, not just Pixar. Um, you know, but, you know, us, we all remember when this movie came out. But what I realized, I actually watched this not too long ago. If you go and watch this movie 
you can actually see how like raw and rough and rigid the animation actually was. Obviously, at the time, yeah. this was cutting edge. But if you compare it now, where we've obviously made strides um, in animation all these years later, you can see like how rough around the edges is and everything. And I'm not saying that is a criticism, but I, I think that's more of like goes to say like how amazing it was that it was made at the time it was made. Tom Hanks and Tim Allen voicing Woody and Buzz. Can't get better than that. You know, this movie, like a lot of Pixar films, plays on the heartstrings of a child's relationship with toys. I remember playing with the little green army men hmm. and Mr. Potato Head. Uh, I, I still have a stuffed elephant that sits on the shelf in my room, so I still have uh, a relationship with some of my favorite toys. Uh, I love some of the clever concepts like the toys in the claw machine that are sort of uh, like conditioned and brainwashed, like the claw, like yeah. that's the only thing they've <laughs> oh, ever yeah. seen. That's just like a brilliant idea in a film. Yeah, I mean, Toy Story was number one on my list. Sam, number one on your list as oh, well. Oh, yeah. And um, yep. it's hard to rank the Toy Story films. Um, they're all really great. The reason I put it as number one is just because of what you said, Champ. Without this film... None of what else we've seen since really would have been made possible. It was groundbreaking. And what I love about most Pixar films, but especially Toy Story, is kids love it. You know, you're when you were a kid, you loved it. Um, but also parents do, too, because there are a lot of jokes trickled in that only adults get. And I think that it's just a fun way for the filmmakers to make it enjoyable, not just for kids, but for everybody. Well, that's what that's what the Pixar filmmakers, really, just speaking generally, have nailed. They yeah. found really oh, found absolutely. that balance between making it entertaining for kids and also for parents. Well, and you say kids, Dean, but uh, I don't think Sid would agree with you here um, with Toy Story and like in the toys. Um, but also, I just wanted to make a quick shout out with Toy Story that I saw was that Disneyland opened Pizza Planet Restaurant. A lifelike of what's going to um, what I loved. I love this place. It was like Dave and Buster's in a sense. Pizza Planet was just this place when they opened the doors, they made it look a lot bigger than it actually would have been if we were to walk in, you know? Obviously, Woody and Buzz about the size of a beer can to a smart water. Well, but, and, and what I love, too, about the whole series, and Champ, I think you're going to get into this maybe a little bit later, but uh, when it came out in Action Figures Toys, that was the cool toy. Buzz was the cool toy. Oh, yeah. And, and since then, toys and how kids play with toys and the types of toys has changed dramatically. And Toy Story, as the trilogy continues on, nails that and recognizes that. And that becomes a huge part of the narrative uh, throughout that trilogy. So number one for me, number one for Sam, and number three for Champ is Toy Story. One more thing on Toy Story. Can we please bring back the cloud wallpaper? Because in Andy's room, that is just glorious. I need some of that in my life right now. Put it in the man cave. Okay, guys, my number three, and this was tough, uh, between... I had four or five that I wanted to put on here, but number three, ultimately, I put Up on here, 2009 film. Um, you know, with all of these, everybody knows what they're about, but, um, you know, it's a little bit of a refresher. Um, there's there's an old man named Carl Fredrickson, 78 years old. Uh, his wife passes away, and his whole life changes. And he actually decides to travel to a place that he and his wife had intended on traveling to, and intended on seeing the world, he ties all of the balloons to um, his house, and up it goes. And the journey that he goes on with this young Boy Scout and this dog that uh, can talk because of some unique technology, I mean, it's just <laughs> such a cool film. But what I will say was just something that I'll never forget is the relationship between him and his wife. And at the end, when it's revealed that, you know, he did get his adventure with his wife, 
they, they lived their adventure. They didn't get to go to all these places, but the adventure was them. And I remember, you know, tearing up. I mean, this is a, you know, an animated film, and the characters you're so connected to, <laughs> they're cartoons. And you're, I'm literally remember, you know, getting, you know, tears in my eyes because of how powerful that was. And I know that you guys have felt that too with some of these films. I mean, the, the connection oh, yeah. and the emotion is incredible. The filmmakers are great at incorporating very mature themes into these, I don't like calling them kids' movies, they're family films, I yeah. would say. They're very good at incorporating mature themes into family films, and that's really what makes these movies better than some of the other animated movies out there that are really just for kids. These movies are, to, they really try and teach a lesson through their stories. Yeah. In our generation, too, scenes how we kind of were brought up in this era is what kind of continues to draw us to watch them. Yeah. Um, it took me a minute to figure out what movie you were talking about because um, I only know it as Arriba. Uh, that's Spanish for up. Hmm. Um, because we would watch it in Senor Giddens class, oh, okay. and uh, it was in Spanish for about 30 seconds, so the title was Ariba, but other than that, we kind of talked her into playing it in English, so that's that's where I remember okay. the film from. Yeah, Up is a, one of the, it, that was just off my list, that would be my number four. Like I said, uh, Pixar's stash of movies is quite incredible, so well, very hard. We went through the Rotten Tomatoes earlier, yeah. like the percentages is unreal. Yeah, very hard to narrow it down to just three, um, but Up definitely worthy of being in there. Sam, number two for you. Number two for me is going to be uh, Lightning McQueen is your winner. Headline scene from Big City all the way to Small Town USA, Radiator Springs. This is where McQueen ends up as he damages the road and is sentenced to fix it before he can continue his travels to California in order to contest in the Piston Cup. Um, final race, too. Owen Wilson voices McQueen. Obviously, it's Cars. Lightning McQueen, um, obviously, you've seen him in Walmarts near you. Um, he's all over. Um, I really like this movie. I like, I just like Owen Wilson. I like his voice. And just has him as Lightning McQueen, just like he's kind of got like a high-pitched kind of squeak voice to him with a lot of sincerity to it. And it always seems that he has like life, real life fact that he's about to drop on you. He does a great job. Um, I really like the movie mainly because like of the relationship of like Lightning McQueen was the best. He knew he was the best. He acted like he was the best. But then when Doc Hudson came around in Radiator Springs who, let me tell you, won three Piston Cups and holds the record for the most single-season wins ever. He just kind of brings them back down to earth and that friends and family and love and compassion and, you know, being able to help your neighbor are some of the things that in life that we really need to build on in order to be better people ourselves. And it really just kind of brought out that, like, you're not as big and as good as what you really think you are. Sometimes it's okay to ask for help. And that's what he needed. He needed the help of Mater and all the other people of Radiator Springs to help him fix the road and get to California to compete in the final race. It's a good, it's a movie that has a good uh, message about humility and yeah. being humble and sort of, uh, you know, learning to respect people for, or in this case, cars for who they are. Oh, it's cool that you put it on there, Sam, because, you know, it's a good film, don't get me wrong, but Pixar's got such a stable of amazing films that I don't think it typically is right. among people's favorites, but obviously mm -hmm. it is for you. That's really cool. I, I remember reading this weird article just about cars, about how it's at like it was kind of just like a joke but kind of like a half serious point about someone who wrote about the cars trilogy about how it was like actually a post-apocalyptic world where only cars had taken over <laughs> and where are all the people and it's actually like this really demented world and movie it was kind of a oh, weird okay. take but uh something to think about all right my number two is 2003 film finding nemo 
uh, directed by Andrew Stanton. This film was nominated for Best Animated Picture, Best Original Score, Best Sound Editing, and Best Original Screenplay. Uh, I really love this movie. I love the undersea world that we're thrust into. It's vibrant and beautiful with all these colors, uh, whether it's in a coral reef or in the deep ocean or the open ocean. Um, the adventure we go on trying to find Nemo is super fun. We meet a lot of cool characters like the Tank Gang and Crush and uh, Nigel the Pelican. Um, you know, it's it's just a fun movie and a fun adventure. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. uh, Finding Nemo was number two for me as well. Didn't quite make the cut for you, Sam. I just keep swimming. Yeah. <laughs> no, but really, Finding Nemo, a great film. And what I will add is that uh, one of, in my opinion... Uh, the best sequels of any film I've ever seen. Finding I thought Dory. Finding Dory was almost there. Mm -hmm. um, and there were some great, uh, obviously great characters in both, two totally different films. Um, but yeah, I, I, I loved it. I loved the characters. And obviously the, the relationship between father and son is highlighted in Finding Nemo. Yeah, and along Absolutely. those lines, I think the key to the movie is honestly the first scene we see uh, when Nemo's mother and brother and sisters, you know, they get eaten by the, the shark. And it's kind of traumatizing to watch, you know, oh, this is a kid's movie and we're going to start off with something crazy like this. But I think it's absolutely key for the rest of the movie because it makes us instantly care about the fish with the gimpy fin and his overprotective father, Marlin. We actually like realize why he's acting how he is throughout the rest of the movie. And it makes everything that happens throughout the rest of the film, you know, all the trials and tribulations and things they go through, it makes it more meaningful because we actually like love and have an attachment for these characters. Yeah, and of course, Alan DeGeneres voices Dory, and Dory brings so much comedic value to, to both films. Uh, all right, Sam, how about you, number one? Uh, you said Toy Story, right? Yep, already beat me to it. Yep. yep. So Toy Story, number one for me as well. So that means we get right to you, champ, for your number one. Yeah, we're going to stay in the same realm. My number one movie is Toy Story 3 from 2010, okay. uh, directed by Lee Unkrich. This is the third film in the history of cinema, uh, the third animated film to ever be nominated for Best Picture, along with Beauty and the Beast and Up, Evan, you mentioned before. Uh, also, obviously, nominated for Best uh, Animated Film, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Sound Editing, and Best Original Song. This movie has so much heart, and it tugs at your heartstrings more than any of the others I've seen. It's the rare case where... One of the sequels, I think, is actually even better than the original, which we already talked about. You know, I think that it really hits on, Evan, you mentioned how toys sort of change and with the times. I think this movie really shows how a relationship a kid has with his toys changes over time. I mentioned my stuffed elephant that I have sitting on my shelf. Right. Obviously, when I was little, he used to sleep yeah. right in my bed. That doesn't happen anymore. Uh, the The ending of this film, where they sort of... He hands the toys down to Bonnie, I think her name is. Uh, the idea that toys are sort of ageless and timeless and that they could serve someone else after the person, because Andy's going off to college. Yeah. I think that's a really cool idea. Um, I think it has some good commentary on how uh, they go to the, the toys at Sunnydale or something, I think it's called, and Lotso and the baby yeah. are sort of like these demented toys that have sort of lost faith in humanity and people, and I think that's sort of a good commentary on how, like, there's people in the real world who sort of become disenfranchised with government or people or local officials or whoever. I just think that there's some really great adult themes. It's a remarkable yeah. kids' movie, and when they're going, you know, it's just, it provides such a stark meditation on love and loss, and that's really quite the achievement. 
Yeah, and and you talk about the relationship between the kid and the toy. That's explored heavily in the second film, of course, with Jesse. But uh, you're right, and, and I, I was talking about it earlier. The scene where they're, I, I think they're in a furnace and they're slowly sliding down, being pulled into their death. I mean, I mean, people were like, including myself, were like in tears. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, it was emotional, and it shows how much you, they, the filmmakers, have done to to make you care about these characters over the course of three films. I mean, I, I, at one point, I'm thinking, I remember thinking, I'm like in tears over an animated film, and that's a powerful. That's really powerful. I thought that they tied it up perfectly with the trilogy. So I'm, they actually, like you said, okay. Toy Story 4 is coming out in 2019. And I'm slightly nervous about this because I feel like the trilogy ended perfectly. Right. I don't know if they needed to touch it again. I mean, I have faith in Pixar. I have faith in the filmmakers. But we'll see what they're about to do with Toy Story 4. If I would have pulled a Dean and broke the rules, I probably would have put Toy Story 1, 2, and 3 as my number one. Um, I just want to... Yeah. No, hey, fair enough. Um, I probably would have. I, I like it. I like it a lot. There you have it, guys. Let's run them down real quick. Uh, Sam, your uh, top three Pixar films. Monsters, Inc. coming in at number three. Cars at number two. And Toy Story, the original. And number one. And how about you, Chant? My number three was Toy Story. My number two was Finding Nemo. And my number one Pixar film, yet to be released, Toy Story 3. Up was number three for me, Finding Nemo 2. And Toy Story, the original, was number one. All right, guys, now we're going to transition to a brand new segment. It's called This Week in Film History. Champ, you came up with this, so just take it away. This week in film history, Canadian filmmaker James Cameron becomes the first person to make a solo dive to Challenger Deep, the deepest point on planet Earth. So James Cameron, obviously known for films such as Avatar, the Terminator series, Titanic, and whatnot, uh, he's actually known for doing something historic beyond movies here. I'm just going to read a, a brief paragraph uh, from this article. Actually, it's just straight from the Wikipedia page, just so people kind of have an idea, and then we'll sort of briefly discuss what we think about it. On 26 March 2012, Canadian filmmaker James Cameron made a solo man descent in the Deep Sea Challenger to the bottom of the Challenger Deep. At approximately 5.15 on 26 March, the descent began. Deep Sea Challenger arrived at the bottom. Shortly after, the descent lasted 2 hours and 36 minutes, and the recorded depth was 10,898.4 meters when Deep Sea Challenger touched down. Cameron had planned to spend about six hours near the ocean floor exploring, but decided to start the ascent to the surface after only two hours and 34 minutes. The time at the bottom was shortened because a hydraulic fluid leak in the lines controlling the manipulator arm obscured the visibility out of only the viewing port. It also caused the loss of the submissible starboard thrusters. Uh, at about 12 noon, the Deep Sea Challenger website says the hub resurfaced after a 90-minute ascent, although Paul Allen, one of his... Uh, comrades in the venture uh, indicated that the ascent only took about 67 minutes. During a post-dive press conference, Cameron said, quote, I landed on a very soft, almost gelatinous flat plane. Once I got my bearings, I drove across it for quite a distance and finally worked my way up the slope. The whole time, Cameron said, he didn't see any fish or living creatures more than an inch. The only free swimmers I saw were small amphipods, shrimp-like bottom feeders. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, filmmakers, especially ones as successful as James Cameron, have the power and the resources and the <laughs> financial means to take on these ventures. Um, but obviously, the first thing you think of when you think of James Cameron is Titanic. And I'm curious as to if he had a, a deep, deep interest for the depths of the ocean before that, before the film, or if the film really, in, you know, really 
I guess, boosted his interest. I, I don't know for sure, but I think James Cameron has always had an interest in such things. He actually directed a film in 1989 called The Abyss, okay. which is about a group of deep-sea submarine divers who sort of get lost within the underwater world. And he also uh, returned to it, I think it was called The Ghosts of the Abyss, uh, several years later after Titanic. And also Titanic is a ship that sunk to the bottom of the ocean. So clearly James Cameron, who is someone who is always interested in different worlds, whether it be yeah. Avatar, the Alien movies, you know, Terminator. Clearly this is something he's, all these other oh, world of exploration is something he's interested in. Yeah, and I think too, um, you guys probably would agree that, you know, the the more that he is able to explore outside of the world of film, the more it can influence him inside the world of film. Um, I'm sure, no surprise to you, Sam, that James Cameron, who's <laughs> he's collected quite a... Quite a, a resume. Yeah, a resume. Um, you know, yeah. it, it's interesting that he's involved in, in this work as well. I would love to see this movie in, like, if they got a Deep Sea Challenge 3D. I'd love to see this thing in, like, the IMAX. I think that would just blow your socks off. And, I mean, who's not interested in the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> I mean, people that say they aren't and they want to go visit other, you know, we talked about this earlier, Champ. We don't even know what's in the bottom of our ocean, let alone we want to go to Mars. I think, you know... I think all of that exploration is intriguing. Me finding out what's what's at a place that no one's ever been before. Well, yeah. there's just as, in my opinion, there's just as likely a chance that there's aliens in the ocean that there is in space. Yeah. I mean, we've we've explored hardly any of the ocean at all, and that's why things like this are are sort of fascinating. Just to just to put a bow on this, just one other thing that uh, James Cameron said in an interview after the sub. There's so much pressure when he reached the bottom yeah. of this. Uh, uh, the ocean like this, he said the sphere that he was in and the window that he sort of looked out in pushed forward towards him three inches. So the area that he's in is actually shrinking. And that is ridiculously claustrophobic to me. Post-trip interview, he said, quote, it was very lunar, very desolate place, very isolated. My feeling was one of complete isolation from all humanity. Literally in the space of one day, I felt like I had gone to another planet and come back. We're about to review the movie Unsane. That's insane. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and it's not like he's kind of manning these missions and sending somebody else. He's he's doing all Dude, of this. He was so, in a, I mean, it says it's here just that it was a 24-foot vessel. Yeah, wild. I mean, just and wild. So that was what day uh, or what year, champ, in this week in history? That's uh, March 26, 2012, so just two days ago on Monday. So obviously this week in film history, something new we're going to try out. I, what are you kind of hoping to accomplish with this segment, champ? Well, yeah, it'll vary from uh, you know uh, week to week or whenever we decide to bust it out. Sometimes it'll be sort of a unique thing like this that's sort of related to film that occurred. Yeah. Other times it might be sort of a big film release or something quirky that came out uh, throughout hit film history. The goal is to kind of just look back throughout the history of cinema, which is obviously long, detailed, mm -hmm. and illustrious, and sort of uh, pick out cool things that maybe people didn't know and look back on. Or we lose track of, obviously. You know, a lot of things happen. Yeah. Like when we looked at 08, it definitely stuck out to us that we were like, wow, 08 actually had a lot of cool flicks. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of cool to do that, too. I've, I've said from, from the beginning, I want this podcast to sort of be, yes, we review current films and we want to talk about movies that are in theaters and give people recommendations to watch current things. But we also, as lovers of cinema, want to pay homage and look back at sort of movies that maybe people have forgot or maybe that were released. Um, and right. be sort of a well-rounded podcast throughout the history of cinema. Yeah. All right, guys, now it's time for our featured review on this Wednesday, the 28th. We are breaking down this psychological thriller, Unsane. 
slips away from you, you know? Changing your phone number and your email becomes normal. Taking out a restraining order, normal. Relocating to another city, normal. But you still see your stalker everywhere? Rationally, I know. This is my imagination. But I'm alone in a strange city, and I never feel safe. So this film, directed by Steven Soderbergh, obviously very popular, a very well-known director. He's done Traffic, uh, The Oceans Trilogy, Aaron Brockovich, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Kind of a little bit of everything there. He's known as a bit of an experimental director, certainly was in this film. The star of this film is Claire Foy. She plays our main character, Sawyer Valentini. She's most well-known for her role in The Crown. I've not seen that, but I understand she was well-received for that. Uh, also, Joshua Leonard, Jay Farrow, and Juno Temple. Also, Matt Damon makes a brief cameo in this, but not really uh, many big names, um, at least by Steven Soderbergh's standards. So, real quick, I'm, I'm going to run down the plot here from IMDb. A young woman, Sawyer, is involuntarily committed to a mental institution where she's confronted by her greatest fear, but is it real or a product of her delusion? Unsane. It's all about trying to determine, is she crazy, is she not? So if you guys uh, don't mind, I'm just going to jump right in and, and elaborate. So Sawyer, our main character, she's the victim of a stalker. She's moved to another city hundreds of miles away to get away from the stalker. But she still struggles mentally and emotionally with the trauma of what happened to her. So she ends up going to a mental health facility for counseling. She just wants to go talk to a counselor, that's it. Before she knows it, she's being admitted First for a day, then for a week, and that's where things kind of start to spiral for her. And the question in the movie, and as the title would allude to, is, is she crazy or is she not? Is she insane or is she not insane? Uh, so, obviously with this film, we're going to talk much more in the spoilers section. Um, but I do want to give a little bit of what I liked about it and didn't like uh, before we get to spoilers. So... As we know and we've learned, this was actually all shot on an iPhone. It was a very experimental film, and what I liked about using that is the colors were very washed out. It was very bleak. Um, the shots, at least in the first part of the film, are very unique. You have all of these close-up shots. I mean, there were so many different shots that are, I mean, inches away from her face. Her face is taking up the majority of the screen. And I think that's meant to try to get inside her head and try to get her perspective on what's happening. It's so contained to just her and what's happening to her. Not, and, you know, so. not even just the close-up shots, but there's also shots in the beginning as the credits are rolling as we're, that are sort of following her. But yeah. it's like someone is watching her following her down the street shots through like tree branches or around corners her walking into our office and it literally would be like if someone was stalking someone sitting there holding their phone yeah. and watching her walk down the street so Soderbergh and his cinematographer and filmmakers are they do a really good job of using the iPhone to sort of create the suspense and give us the kind of feel that they want us to do um Touching just on the iPhone idea, it's an iPhone 7, first of all, so we're not even talking about the, the newest iPhones when this was being made. But the fact that Steven Soderbergh, who is an Academy Award-winning director, would do something like this, I mean, this is a guy who can get big budgets, you know, and as you said, he is an experimental filmmaker, but the fact that he would try and make a movie that was going to be re released theatrically with an iPhone, I just respect the hell out of that from just like an art standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I thought the acting was fantastic, at least the lead. Um mm -hmm. 
Claire Foy was amazing in this. I also liked that there was some comedy sprinkled in here and there. They did it subtly, but there was some really nice points where you're kind of chuckling under your breath. Um, but I, uh... I guess kind of my takeaway without diving into spoilers is I really felt this film was almost a tale of two halves or a tale of two thirds and a final third. I really, really enjoyed the first half or a little bit more than the half. I thought the plot unraveled, got off the rails, and the theme that they were so intently focusing on in the beginning of the film, they lose sight of that you know, in the second half, and I was so into it, and then I started to kind of lose, not interest, but lose my um, appreciation for what they were doing. Yeah, I thought it, I kind of agree with that a little bit. I did feel like the suspense was there all the way through. Um, you know, it, it's one of those films where, like, right away, something feels a little bit off. It yeah. feels weird. It feels like there's a there's a sense of dread, like something bad is going to come. Um, so, and you also realize that this is going to be one of those movies where you don't really know what the hell is going on the whole time. I so. mean, just for what you guys saying there, just some talking points about it being so, like, choppy, I would almost say, that you felt that it was kind of Dean at some yeah. points. It was only shot in 10 days. This, this film was all put together, hmm. you know, or filmed in 10 days, so... Kind of gave you a little time structure there. I think this does a really good job, too, at touching in on mental illness. Um, being inside a psychiatric ward and, you know, being surrounded by people that might actually have a mental illness or do they, it kind of just gives us this, you know, a stray thought of, like, what actually happens inside because, you know, nine out of ten times most of us had not been in a mental facility. But it just it really brings to light that there is mental illness out there and it's not something that should be poked fun at. But then again, it really opened our eyes to what is actually out there, what's inside the walls that we never really want to see ourselves in, I would say. And some of the potential problems that could be within the American healthcare system, which we know is not perfect. I think there's definitely a conscious effort by Soderbergh here to sort of comment on the sort of state of American healthcare. Yeah. So, All right, guys. Um, it's spoiler time. If you haven't seen the movie, you want to click out um, right now, if you have seen it, we're going to talk about this, and, and this is really uh, when we can really start to talk about this film. There's only so much we can say before spoilers. but So the crux of this film and the crux of whether Sawyer is insane or not are two key elements. Number one, she feels as though, and other mental health patients at this facility feel as though um, they've been admitted you know, against their will. That the, the facility, uh, once you get approved for insurance, that they start milking your insurance company for dollars and they've got tactics and ways to get you um, to uh, be committed and admitted um, just simply for saying you've had suicidal thoughts before. The other key element is that I would say in the second third of the film, Sawyer's stalker, David Strine is his name, he starts showing up at the hospital under a different name, George Shaw. Uh, obviously, those uh, listening know this, and those listening to spoilers know this, but uh, you know, we're, we're led to wonder, as the film plays out, is he really there, or is she seeing him in somebody else? Um, so, kind of fast forward to, I think it was about halfway in, we, we start to realize, sooner than I would have wished, that yeah, she might be traumatized, but she's not crazy. Uh, we realize that David Strine, her stalker, did indeed get a job at the hospital. We realize that all this is true in part because we're taken out of Sawyer's perspective and we see third-party perspective, him killing another mental health patient. He kills Sawyer's mom at a motel. Um, we see all these things that he's done where Sawyer's not even around. So her narrative isn't in question. Um, and also, um, at the end, we, we learn that 
the, the hospital, the facility, gets busted. And it, we learn that they were indeed um, <laughs> they were indeed ripping off people through their insurance. Um, and, and the cops show up and so on and, and so forth. And finally do something. They've showed up a few times in between. Yeah. Um, so I just thought that there was a point where we start to it starts to become clear that, yeah, this guy's actually there. He's actually there. He's committing all of these different heinous acts to get her close to him. And that's when it started to spiral for me. I thought it was really cool and really interesting when you're wondering, is she really all there? And once you find out, no, actually this crazy stalker uh, is at this facility and this hospital is ripping people off. And then it just kind of went, it went out from a, a psychological thriller to just this violent, you know, Thriller. I don't know. It was played pretty straightforward at, from that yeah. point on. I mean, I, I found myself, you know, I'm a deep thinker as anyone who's listened to our few episodes knows. So I'm always looking for something a little more. I was waiting for sort of like a, a Shutter Island, like none of this is actually real twist sort of thing. And it never came. Yeah. Uh, once we see David kill Nate in the basement... Uh, and also kill Sawyer's mother, then it's confirmed to us that, yes, he actually is there. And capable and, of doing it. Right, and up yeah. to that point, I was asking myself constantly, is Sawyer just making this up? Because we see in the very beginning of the movie when she goes on the, the Tinder date or whatever, that she manifests David in the random guy that she's with. So I will argue, I will push back a little bit on, Dean, you say that she's not actually crazy, she's traumatized. To me, that's a little bit of the same thing. I think she yeah. is crazy because we see that with the last scene where she envisions David even after she's dealt with him. So I, I do think she is a little bit crazy. I think that question is a little bit ambiguous. Um, but I just want to kind of spiral off that too, though, Champ, is that you, you say she's crazy like that, but being stuck in a confined walls with your superior being your actual stalker, wouldn't that just make you go kind of crazy yeah. too? Especially when no one believes you but that's, at all. That's also a commentary on what you were talking about earlier with looking at the state yeah. of the healthcare system. Right. Like, is, the, is putting all these crazy people together actually the best way to heal them? Yeah, or do they just make it worse? And it was it free reign in, that, in the room too. Oh, yeah. Like, they, they weren't, there was no, like, solitary or anything like that. It was... You know, I guess one thing that I, you know, for the sake of, yeah, it may, is she crazy? Is she traumatized? I guess there's nuance there. But for the sake of this plot, everything that she thinks is happening actually is. She's not seeing it. And that's an important distinction. And I think that the filmmakers got there way too early. What I mm -hmm. do want to ask you guys, how about these plot holes that I had a hard time wrestling with? How did David Strine, who we find out kills not just the people Chant mentioned, but a guy named George Shaw, how did he get a job at well, this facility. He took the identity of George Shaw. The but only thing is I, knew that Well, the only thing I can think of is that he killed him while the guy was going to be interviewed so and he then was, showed up as him. That's really the only I mean, explanation. He, he put an application in as George Shaw. Or, and at one or point, he the, could have stole his at ID, At one point, though. the doctors, the, the other nurse says, you're such a dedicated employee. It, it sounds like he had been here for a long time and I'm thinking, he, he only would have gone there after she was there. There's no way that he would have known she would have gone there in the first place. Well, because place. It, we see her doing a Google search and yeah. just randomly going there. Along those, I don't know if you're going to mention this one, but Jay Farrell, the Nate character, we find out is, an, is a journalist yeah. who's undercover. It just so happens that he's in there looking to take this down at the same time yeah. that she randomly shows up. So, yes, there are some plot holes. Um, I think we're asked for the point of this movie to sort of look past. Yeah. Well, this one also, I just have to mention two more. 
So he was stabbed in the neck by Sawyer at one point, and apparently is fine. I'm just going to say that. With a shaved down spoon. Yeah, but wouldn't you bleed out in your neck anyway? The other one is, how would she stay locked up as long as she did in solitary confinement, which where he's keeping her, without anybody else knowing? I know it's a shoddy facility, but somebody finds the, the, the dead old guy, who, you know, the dead Nate guy in a random basement, and she's and just there and no one notices? Well, like, they how, they, get, how did he get fentanyl? Yeah, I mean, I, I could have seen why, how he'd be able to get that. I mean, he's hospital, in a psychiatric but... facility. They have all sorts of drugs. He could smuggle it anyway. They do put in some two-bit lines about how he manipulated the system to where yeah. everyone thinks that Sawyer's already been discharged. But no one goes and checks Well, they those. also say something when Nate gets killed that they're sort of like an old wing that's sort of been yeah. shut down. And it's sort of like... Right. so they It got did, sloppy. Well, yes. I mean, but they do make some efforts to try and do this. I just... I, th- I think this movie is, is wanting us to go. You say you were disappointed by the final third. Um, I, I was still into it. I, I still thought it was suspenseful. Um, like I said, I wish it was a little bit more of the sort of like, I wish it was more ambiguous. I wish we were I left to wonder longer. Less is more Because sometimes. it becomes pretty straightforward after a while. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And look, it, I agree there were certain parts in the end that were interesting, but one part that just was terrible is they're in this room where he has her locked up and they just have... A really long conversation, and the the filmmakers just circle around them with the iPhone. It's like a five-plus-minute conversation, and I'm thinking, what is this? This is just silly. It's them, him questioning, her questioning him about his fantasies for her, and I'm like, this isn't... This doesn't feel like this fits in with this movie at all. Well, I think that that comes down to the fact that this movie's shot with an iPhone. Yeah. It's, they're going for this, Soderbergh and the filmmakers are going for this sort of feel like you're watching someone or you're in the room with something. Yeah. You know, the fact that it, you mentioned earlier the, the washed out colors, the fact that it's shot with an iPhone makes it creepy because like, for many reasons, I mean, you know, an iPhone is like the main tool you could use to stalk someone, right? You can take photos of video of something without someone knowing, looking around. You can send them relentless messages, which we see in the movie. Yeah. You, you can stalk people via social media like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. I mean, I think that this is all conscious decision that they want to make it so we're like in the room, someone's holding a phone watching him. Like I almost feel like he's purposely he's trying to use the iPhone technique yeah. in the story. I just didn't think it played well in that scene. I, I guess we disagree because I think it did. I, I liked that sort of scene where they were, where it just sort of went on and they were... But but in terms of using the film to kind of have that voyeuristic stalking perspective, it's not. They're, they're together. And they, they're elaborating on their relationship. And I just thought that it dragged on. And I thought that the atmosphere and the pace of the film was extended there and i just think it didn't fit but um so you, you don't know. you don't think that uh from a from a philosophical standpoint so the end that whole scene you're talking about is david basically trying to convince sawyer to go live, live with him cabin. in a cabin and so i think personally that this is sort of like soderbergh's look into like what the concept of a stalker would be i yeah. mean hopefully none of us sitting around this table are stalkers <laughs> but the idea of a stalker, right? They're, they they talk about this. It's someone who's like in love with the idea of someone rather than just yeah. the actual person. You know, this is someone who clearly, yeah. the person that they're in love with clearly has fault, flaws and weaknesses, which Sawyer tries to point out. But stalkers, who are people who clearly have issues, he dreams about like this perfect wife with the, with the perfect person. And that's embodied in David's dream life of like living in this cabin and renovating in a diner it's an unrealistic unrealistic expectation for an unattainable scenario and i love the twist that he put on it too or well not him but sawyer 
about saying, like, you just love the idea of me. Yeah. You don't love me. Like, listen, this is the real me. And he's like, no, I've seen that. I love you. And then he's like, well, you have to go get, you know, braided-headed girl. And you'd have to obviously... She's, she, this is all calculated by Sawyer, who is trying yeah. to just get out of this situation. But he has this sort of... Because of his dad dying... We, so what we find out Sawyer was his dad's hospice, hospice. nurse. Yeah. So he had That's sort of this... I guess we should have established well, that. He but, has, yeah. Well, at least people have seen the movie. Yeah. We have this sort of... He, he has this sort of view of how Sawyer handled his dying father, and he can't get that out of his head. And it's unrealistic because clearly she's a person who's messed up too, and that's what she tries to point out to him, but he's not having it. Oh, and so, he, won't, he will never. That's all fine and well, but the theme of the movie is whether or not she's crazy or not. It's not about the relationship they... between her and her stalker. The whole point of the first part of the movie is for us to wonder whether or not he actually exists. And then, so well, I, it gets to a point where it's like, I don't just, really care. Yeah, but as soon as we find out that he is real, that theme goes out the window. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And then that's when it went way downhill for me. I really think they could have done a lot better when it comes to the with the whole mental institution. I really thought that they could have played Nate off as like being insane himself. And there was kind so of, much more. And yeah. kind of like tying done. it in and making it more like Jacob. He touches her boobs, so she kicks him in the in the gonads, and and then they see each other at the breakfast hall, and then Jacob goes. Hi, I'm Jacob. He does the same exact <laughs> yeah. thing, and he's going to do the same exact thing. Yeah, it's you know a little different. It's, I just think they could really have evaluate or like not evaluate, but developed the mental institution a little bit and tied into that, making us feel is she crazy or is she not to lead into the point of the stalker actually being there. Because then, if we thought at that point that she actually was crazy, or that she wasn't, we had no idea. The fact of the stalker, that's what made the big point, but yeah. they didn't really hide that fact Well, too it long. sounds like we were all hoping for a little bit more yeah, than just the straightforward story, yeah. which is what we got. Um, I still personally think it was done a little bit better uh, than you guys do, obviously, but uh, I think that we all agree that we were hoping for like a Shutter Island type mm -hmm. thing, where I think the other sh shoe dropped, you know? And I think to some degree, that's where you lose me. It's like, you know, when, when, when the reveal, so to speak, happens so early... And it, it, it is disappointing. And then it, it, it's hard for me to invest in, um, you know, what played out with her and the stalker from there. Okay. Well, one other thing before we get into our final sort of uh, analysis and ratings here. I love the bumper music by Thomas Newman at the start in the beginning. It was sort of like this. Yeah. It sounded like a beat that like Eric Bear, who makes the beats for this podcast, <laughs> that, it yeah. sounded like it could be our we theme music. Maybe we yeah. should uh, maybe we should uh, hit up Thomas Newman and see if he'll send them our way because that would fit right in here. <laughs> but anyways, shout out to Eric Bear. Thanks for the music, man. We love that. So. Yeah. Anyways, why don't we get into our final uh, sort it. of analysis here? Sam, uh, let's let's hear it. What did you give this out of ten, and why? Um, I gave it a five. I wasn't it, the the really the the unknowing, the kind of like detachment at the, of the middle of the film, really kind of like just drove me away. drove my drove my interest right out the window when we found out that, like I said, I was looking for a lot more than I than I got. I guess, and I maybe I played into it too much, and I didn't let watch previously. Like I just kind of assumed what was going to happen yeah. by the title. By the previews. Yeah. I had no idea. Um, so I gave it a five, and my favorite line from the movie was, to be continued. So, <laughs> um, I'll go next. Uh, you know, I think you go to watch one film, and for the most part, unless it's done incredibly well, you want to watch one film. You don't want to watch two movies or two really fragmented pieces of film. Right. And I felt like here, um, there you really were watching 
one movie in the first half and then it went a totally different direction and I don't want to see that or I don't care to see that unless it's done better than it was done here I thought there was a lot of places as you said Sam it could have gone and could have been better um, but I was so impressed by the acting and by that first half despite the letdown in the second half that I gave it a 6 out of 10 I agree that the review or that the reveal is uh, dropped too early. We find out too quickly, but I don't think that it ruins the film. I think that there's a consistent theme that Soderbergh's trying to sort of analyze uh, the in intuition of a stalker and sort of what that would do to a person's sanity. I think that there's some good questions through the first half. Um, I like. How, I think I was into it with suspense throughout it. The acting's great, and I just admire the the gumption that it took to try and shoot a film on an iPhone. Um, I think that the shots are clever. Like I said, with the stalking sort of look, with the up close shots, with the sort of chasing someone through the hallways of this facility. I think it's all eerie and creepy, um, and I, I really just thought it was a cool, ambitious film. For so for that reason, I'm giving it a seven out of ten. All right, there you have it. That's our review of Unsane. A little bit across the board here. Um, I like that. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, we've got a 6 out of 10. That's the cumulative uh, rating. 5 for Sam, 7 for Champ, 6 for me. Um, but that's all we have for you on this Wednesday, the 28th of March. As always, we love you guys listening. Uh, quick Champ. A lot of places people can go to check us out. Yeah, like I said, we're on iTunes now, the Second Day Film Podcast. Please go up there and give us a rating or a review. That's super important. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. You can also subscribe. Uh, we're on social media, Facebook, Second Day Film Podcast, Twitter, Second Day Film, all written out. We're on SoundCloud of the Second Day Film Podcast. You can uh, follow us, subscribe there. Uh, Gmail, secondayfilm at gmail.com, and our website is www.secondayfilm at gmail.com. Um, and one other thing, no podcast next week. I'm actually heading to uh, Disney World, so um, mm. it'll be a good time. Uh, I guess it was uh, fitting that we did our Pixar That's review right. there. Um, so I'm going to be out there checking out, hanging out with Woody and Buzz in person. So we'll be back the week after that, um, and we'll have to do some double duty and catch up with you then. Thanks for joining us, everybody, and we will in two weeks. See ya. The Second Day Film Podcast was edited and produced by Brandon Champion. Music featured in this episode was recorded and produced by Eric Baer. The opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the individual that spoke them. Thanks for listening.